The Terrifying Lies Podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to The Terrifying Lies Podcast, where you can listen to a news story every first and third Friday of the month at high noon. Today is part two of a two-part story. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to go back and listen to the last episode. Otherwise, you might find yourself completely lost. This is Hostile Takeover, Part 2 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nibo. picked up the duffel, heavier than I expected, and shambled over to a gunmetal-colored van with no windows. I opened the back doors and jumped in. A few containers sat there, the type that can be bought at military surplus stores. I shut the doors behind me. I unzipped the duffel and found what could only be a costume. Took out a pair of rustic pants, patchwork of leather and denim with mini knee pads sewn right into the fabric. I put them on. Things were festooned with metal links, studs, and spikes. There was no shirt, only a leather harness, held together with rusty steel buckles. I keep myself in excellent condition with a rigid weight training regimen, so I wasn't concerned about going shirtless. But as I put on the harness, I wondered just what Gary had in mind. I had to continually remind myself that Goldthwaite Legal had given me everything I owned and enough security to last the rest of my life. If I had to put on a Halloween costume and hang out with a gang of eccentric muckety-mucks on an occasional Saturday morning, if that was a condition of the gig, I'd just have to accept it. I found a helmet in the duffel, a motorcycle lid, a red mohawk of black feathers started at the front and trailed over the top. A couple of feet of tail, like a boa, extended from the back of the helmet. I put it on and pulled it down over my brows. Everything fit perfectly, as if Gary had hired it all tailored but it had a beaten look to it, smelled used. I got out of the back of the van. In the light, I noticed a rust-colored stain on the right hip of the pants. Runnels from the stain reached downward past my knees. I touched the stain. The fabric felt stiff. Just as I began to speculate on what substance could have made the stain, Gary spoke up. You look like a warrior, he said. Gary wore a similar getup. He'd opted for a canvas serape held in place by a wide belt. A bandolier of what could only be homemade dynamite sticks ran over one shoulder and across his chest. He wore a tanker's helmet, probably vintage, maybe World War II, and a pair of goggles. He chewed a cigar. I'd never seen Gary smoke. Never even smelled nicotine on him. What's going on? I asked. Gary, we gotta go now, Chick said from the driver's seat. Chick painted his face black and greased his hair back. He wore a beat-up BDU top. I spotted brass knuckles on his right hand, which rested on the bus's steering wheel. I'll explain everything on the road. Let's move, Gary said. When I got into the bus, everyone smiled and waved. Some of the seats had been removed to allow room for a bolted-down crate of weapons. 
I took in an anxious breath as I spotted everything from pistols to shotguns, net throwers, a voluminous device that could only be a flamethrower, crossbows, various knives, and a closed crate that said warning explosive in large intimidating letters. Chick closed the bus door, shifted it into gear, popped the clutch. The bus lurched into motion, nearly sending me ass over tea kettle onto the floor. I steadied myself on the backs of two seats, then sat down. Gary sat on the bench across from me. For a long moment, he said nothing. He just smiled. How do you like your new office back at the firm? Uh, it's fine, I said, looking out the bus window, past the steel bars, at an unfolding wastelandscape. The bus coughed up an enormous smoke ring at its aft. I had to fight to get you the northern view. I used to be on that side of the building and I loved it. In many ways, I regret leaving. But, you know, the high executives of any firm must maintain a sort of distinction for both the clients and the employees. I do like the north office. The view of the bridge is breathtaking when the mist is up. Is the fountain too much? Gary asked. When I'd first walked into my new office, I'd felt a bit affronted, I have to admit, with the enormity of the fountain wall. Gary involved himself personally in decorating the executive suites. He made a practice of installing some kind of lavish feature into every office. Affectations, he said, that reflect the measure of his partners as he saw them. The fountain in my office, which extended the full length of one wall, eight feet in height, reflected my undying ethic of work. Just as water can be harnessed to power cities, Goldthwait Legal had been fortunate enough to harness my energy for practicing law and, even more importantly, boosting profits. The never-ending lick of fountain water and the accompanying humidity had bothered me for the first month or so, but I had grown used to the sound and had even learned to enjoy its soothing effect. The fountain's fine, I said. I thought you'd like it. Gary plucked up a battered catcher's mask augmented with spikes and fur. He pulled it down over his face and adjusted the straps for comfort and space. You know, I'm thinking of bringing Collins up. He's only been with the firm for, what, two years? I said, surprised. I didn't like Collins. Put more stock into his wardrobe than his handle of law. But you know what they say, dress for success. Well, he's a bit of a greenhorn, but I'm telling you, I have a nose for these things. Gary stood up used a series of hand grips hanging from the ceiling to make his way back to the weapons bin. He leaned over the edge and plucked up a wooden baseball bat fixed with nails driven through its shaft. He hefted it for weight and balance. Collins has a certain feel for people. I think he's a tap dancer. Tap dancers were lawyers who bluffed their way through cases with more posture than knowledge. A good tap dancer could be valuable if he is backed by a bookworm. Of course it's your call. The more I see, the more I trust your judgment, I said. Gary hooked up a crudely crafted grappling hook. He made his way back to his seat and handed it to me. I warily picked it up and sat it in my lap. You can't be jealous, Gary said. What? I cocked up an eyebrow. It's not about who comes to the table first, it's about capability. For me, it's always been about capability, not seniority. I got over that jealous thing a long time ago and learned to trust my instincts. Like I say, I have a nose for people. Oh, I'm not jealous of Collins, I lied. I'd been at Goldthwaite Law for almost ten years, and Collins seemed like nothing more than an upstart. Not even a little? Gary asked, holding up his fingers to indicate a small amount. Well, maybe a little. Gary guffawed a rack of laughter and slammed me on the back. For an old guy, 
had power in him. Takes a real man to admit that he's jealous. We have a rabbit, Chick said from the driver's seat. Gary stood up and looked out his windshield. I followed his view. The red Subaru I had spotted on the way into the Shia traced its way along the road ahead. Jim and Charles, get to the Sponsons. I'm taking Tyler up top. The men jumped into action. Jim from accounting with his spiked gloves and what looked like a blunderbuss net launcher. And Charles, the chief technology officer, wearing a dragon skin duster and war paint. Charles hadn't gone for subtlety, having chosen a double-headed axe from the weapons bin. Tyler, with me, Gary said. He moved to a ladder that extended upward to a trap door in the ceiling. He climbed, shot a bolt, and threw the trap door open. He tossed his spiked bat up through the opening and pulled himself up top. He offered me a hand. I took it. He helped me up out of the guts of the bus. The heat hit me hard, along with a vanguard of pinhead flies. One of them nicked me in the eyeball. Another flew into my mouth. I sputtered it up and spat it over the edge. Chick guided the bus into the oncoming lane and began to close the distance between the Subaru and us. Jim and Charles opened the back emergency door and mounted a narrow catwalk ledge that had been welded to the side of the vehicle. Using a series of handles, they made their way along the side of the moving bus and brought their weapons to ready. It just takes some longer than others, Gary shouted over the wind, which scrambled his white hair and brambly wisps. What was that? I shouted back. Some people just take longer to climb up into the roost. You've been with the firm, what, eight years now? That's right. A man drove the Subaru, his hair done up in a dreadlocked bun. He and his girlfriend both double-took Jim and Charles, hanging from the side of the bus, swinging their weapons, axe and blunderbuss, flicking their tongues, grabbing their crotches, baring their teeth. The way I see it, Gary went on. He walked along the top of the bus, using a railing to stabilize himself. Doesn't matter how long it takes a man to climb to the roost, Goldthwaite Law. Anyone willing to work his ass off and learn all along the way can make it in the end. I've launched more successful careers than I care to count. Charles swung with his double-headed axe. He cut a rowdy slit in the trunk, the Subaru. The girlfriend screamed. The boyfriend, now bug-eyed with fear, put on the gas. Chick compensated by increasing the bus's speed. I lost my balance and fell. I snapped a hand down on the rail, catching myself before sliding off the roof onto the pavement below. Gary offered a hand. I fumbled for it. He pulled me up. I heard a series of thwacks as Charles kept swinging at the Subaru. Something shattered, a visualized safety glass imploding onto the couple inside. The Subaru launched forward. Chick threw the wheel sideways and slammed the bus into the side of the red car. I lost purchase again, slid under the rails. I let my grappling hook go and clapped both hands down on the pipe, barely catching myself. I looked down at the zipper line painted on the cheese grater pavement below and held my breath. I looked up at Gary just as he finished touching off a stick of dynamite with his cigar. He let the fuse burn for a moment, keeping his eyes on the Subaru. Grab the handle, Jim shouted from the sponsons below. He pointed his blunderbuss at a grip, screwed into the side of the bus. I reached for it, clamped down hard. I let up on the rail and slid down onto the catwalk next to Charles. Kaboom! An explosion opened a crater not far ahead of the Subaru, Gary's dynamite. The Subaru slowed down and lurched sideways around the smoking ruin of pavement. You know, Charles said, that case of yours, Burnbridge versus Biochemo, it got me thinking. Maybe we need to bolster our technological security at the firm. I blinked, not believing that Charles was talking tech with me while I hung on for my life. I mean, 
He stood on the catwalk as surely as if he was on solid ground, one hand on a metal handle bolted to the side of the bus, the other holding a blunderbuss net launcher. I could almost see his relaxed expression in his eyes through the slits of his bulletproof mask, the expression he uses when expounding on data security concerns at tech review meetings in the war room. Jim stood on the other side of Charles, still going at the Subaru with his double-bladed axe. I mean, how old was that kid who installed the Trojan horse, 16? Uh, 17, I said. Anyway you slice it, he won't be tried as an adult. And how much does the prosecution think he drafted from biochemo? Uh, somewhere north of 300 million? What is this world coming to? The Terrifying Lies podcast will return after this short commercial break. Welcome back to the Terrifying Lies podcast. Gary leapt from the roof of the moving bus. I looked up just in time to see him spread eagle, flying. He landed hard on the Subaru's hood, still holding his spiked baseball bat. The dreadlocked boyfriend threw the wheel back and forth, trying to shake Gary free, but Gary hung on, one hand through the broken windshield clenching on the dashboard. With a sturdy swing of his axe, Jim took out the driver's side window. The boyfriend shot over an expression of pure terror, but before the boyfriend could do anything about Jim and his double-bladed axe, Chick threw the wheel and sideswept the Subaru. The girlfriend openly bawled, stabs of mascara running down her cheeks. She waved her hands uncontrollably in the air as if trying somehow to take off like a bird. If you ask me, they should put that kid away for life. Why is it that the punk who knocks over a 7-Eleven and walks away with 100 bucks gets 11 years for aggravated robbery and the 17-year-old hacker ends up getting a cushy job? Not that I want him to be put away, but with you on his defense team and all. I held on for dear life. Gary stood up on unsure legs and went to work with his spiked bat, slamming it down on the hood, driving the nails into the metal. After a half dozen good smacks, something punctured underneath. The engine issued a long breath of smoke. The boyfriend said something to his girlfriend. She nodded as she listened to his quick plan. He turned back to the road with new resolve and slammed on the brakes sending Gary flying from the hood off the Subaru. My boss, the president and CEO of Goldthwaite Law, soared at least 15 feet before coming down hard on the pavement. The Subaru edged onto the shoulder. Chick slowed down to keep the bus abreast of the Subaru. Charles put a hand on my shoulder. I'm telling you, I'm going to bring in a consultant to take a good hard look at our servers and software, top to bottom. I'll be damned if some kid ever finds the balls to hack into my system. Not on my watch. From the corner of my eye, I saw Gary regain his feet. He swayed back and forth for a moment, but otherwise seemed no worse for the wear, even after taking a king-sized header from a moving car. The couple made a break for it, leaving the Subaru and cutting across uneven ground. Charles aimed his blunderbuss and fired. An expertly folded net flew from the flanged barrel. A set of weights spanned the length of the trap out like the tendrils of an octopus. The contraption hit the fleeing couple in mid-stride and took them both down. The entire executive committee of Goldthwaite Law leapt into motion. Charles and Jim jumped from the catwalk and hightailed it toward the couple, who straggled to free themselves from the net. Gary staggered over to the Subaru and leaned inside the broken-out driver's side window. Chick dropped out of the bus's driver's seat and walked to the yellow zipper line painted in the middle of the road. He put his fists to his lower back and stretched causing a series of audible cracks to come from his spine. You know, Gary, 
I've been thinking about the new collateral and style guide. I know you want to go with blue and gold. Don't get me wrong, those are great colors. They represent stability. But I was talking to a couple of old ad friends of mine, and I'm thinking maybe we're onto a new generation of big business. Gary tossed the car, throwing several things out onto the pavement. A laptop case, a woman's purse, a hemp bag full of lumps of wrapped goods. I mean, the kids coming up these days, they do most of their business right on their cell phones. It's fast. It's effective. It isn't for me, but hey, that's the way the world's going. Anyways, I'm thinking we need to re-evaluate our market demographics. Maybe even host a series of focus groups. Do you have anything specific in mind? Gary asked as he came out of the car with a tray of cheese and crackers. He tossed one into his mouth, bent and hooked up the burlap bag. He looked inside, shook his head and smiled. Yeah, it's in the beginning stages, but I think by week's end I'll have something to show you. I'd like to take a look at it. I watched Charles and Jim. They'd driven stakes into the ground and were tying the couple down on the rocky earth. The girlfriend kept bawling. The boyfriend shouted threats and obscenities. Once the couple was secure, the executive team got back on the bus and took their seats. Chick fired up the motor and drove back toward Lot 72. As the bus trundled along, Gary broke out the cheese and crackers. As we ate, he laid out what he had taken from the Subaru. A laptop, a woman's purse containing $63, a burlap sack containing four dime bags of marijuana, and two cell phones. We pulled the bus back into its spot at Lot 72, still eating cheese and crackers. We changed back into business casual. A few of the executive team slapped high fives and exchanged accolades, but little else was said as we got back into our old vehicles, left the Shia, and went our separate ways. As I drove out of the park, the burly security guard who still manned the entrance gate granted me a friendly nod as I passed through and turned onto the highway. William Neeson, the 17-year-old hacker, beat his rap thanks to the crack defense team of Goldthwaite Legal. I'd even caught wind that more than one fat cat development company in the Bay Area had reached out to him with hefty signing bonuses and plenty of options. My place was to defend to the best of my abilities as a lawyer. I'd long since learned that my options on morality and culpability had little to do with law. Every time I see a statue of Lady Justice, she wears a blindfold. With the ink still wet on Neeson's closed case, Gary moved me on to the next thing. Conrad Giles, net worth $250 million. He'd gone out with his wife for a weekend on his two-keel, 31-foot yacht and came back without her. The police suspected that Conrad had fixed his old ball and chain with an actual ball and chain and threw her overboard. There wasn't any hard evidence, but a stack of circumstantial clues up to my eyeballs would take over my life for the foreseeable future. It'd be a tough case, but I'd had tougher. I got up from my desk, made my way to the executive restroom to relieve myself of the four cups of coffee I had drunk since arriving at work. Just as I drew my executive key to admit myself into the sanctum sanctorium of urine and defecation, out came Roger Collins. Based on what I saw in his hand as he exited the washroom, he hadn't been alone at the trough. Collins held a gold-leafed envelope inscribed with the calligraphic words, Hostile takeover fraternity. He looked up at me, perplexity in his eyes. I smiled. I wasn't jealous of Collins. 
Even though he had reached the roost in less than two years, six years quicker than me, I might have even winked at him before passing him and going into the executive washroom. He walked toward his own corner office, looking down at the gold-leafed envelope in both his hands. This has been Hostile Takeover, Part 2 of 2, written and performed by Craig Nibo. Most creators have several projects open in at least some state of completion. I am no exception. Several years ago, I thought it would be awesome to record an album with a completely stripped-down ensemble. I chatted with two of my very best friends about it. Keith Moon, yes, he is a drummer, and his name is Keith Moon, and Rick Neff, an incredible tenor sax player. Both of these guys play in the Rust Monster Band. You can stream Rust Monster's music on Spotify, Amazon Music, or anywhere you listen to music, by the way. When I explained the concept of an album that only used three instruments, that can only play one pitch at a time, although I suppose drum kit plays more than one drum at a time, they both latched onto the idea. The album would consist of only three instruments, drums, electric bass, and tenor sax, with vocals on top. The album would have no frills. Its raw sound would bring exposure and vulnerability to each instrument. Unfortunately, the album still isn't finished, but it will be someday. Today, I present one of the finished tracks from that album. This totally unreleased song goes by the title, This Thing Ain't a Race, and I think it's appropriate to today's story. Fast car, shining star, big house, trophy spouse, steel jaw, snapping claw, distasteful lower states, sarcasm, arrogance, surgery.
This has been This Thing Ain't a Race, composed by Craig Nibo, performed by Craig Nibo, Rick Neff, and Keith Moon. Thank you once again for joining me here in this darkened room where every sound sets the nerves alight. I have to say, it's a rare joy to have you with me here in the dank where somewhere, the constant drip of something abnormal and fetid taps its rhythmic cadence in the background. Until next time, I wish you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please, come again. You're welcome here.